0: I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Bill. Hi, everyone. My name is Bill, and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. Hi Bill. And um, in August, I um, celebrated 30 years of abstinence. <laughs> and, and for me, <clears throat> excuse me, for me, abstinence means, excuse me. <clears throat> abstinence means uh, that I stay away from my binge foods altogether. Uh, I, I try, over the years, I've tried to make as much of an alcoholic-type abstinence as possible, that I, I don't eat my binge foods. Um, I also have a food plan. Uh, I try to eat three uh, healthy meals a day and, uh, and, and try to eat nothing in between, although I will allow myself a snack if it's absolutely necessary and uh, three well, well-balanced meals a day, and most of the time I succeed at that. So, uh, But if I, <clears throat> if I don't eat exactly on my plan, I haven't broken my abstinence. But if I do eat my binge foods, I have. So um, I have 30 years of not eating my binge foods. Um, <clears throat> and What I'd like to, to do is tell you just a little bit about how I got in the program, and then I would really like to spend most of my time talking about the steps, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, I walked in the door in 1977 uh, after having been physically ill. Uh, I had uh, contracted dizzy spells that uh, hadn't been explained, and I've spent about a year going to doctors trying to figure out what, what that was about. The dizzy spells were bad enough that I couldn't drive oftentimes with them. I would I would I would get out on the road. I'd get dizzy and I'd have to pull off to the side and and get out of the car and walk around until until it passed. Um, <clears throat> the original doctor uh, diagnosed an inner ear problem and and put me on some drugs and the drugs helped for a while but uh, they didn't they didn't continue to help. Finally, after a, a number of visits back and forth, I was sent to. A, uh, a ear, nose and thro- ear, nose, and throat specialist who told me, "No, you don't have any problems with with dizziness via any kind of ear problem." But he took a history and he he said, "Well, you know, it might be diabetes." And so he sent me back to get a glucose tolerance test. And the test results came back, and uh, the internist said, "Well, you're not diabetic, but you could be," and uh, and you're. Um, you're, you don't tolerate glucose well. You don't tolerate sugar well. So what you need to do is you need to start um, a sugar-free diet. And he gave me a drug company diet plan. And he said, and he listened to me, and he said, you know, you've got a lot of stress in your life too, and uh, and you need to get yourself out, out from under the stress. So he also gave me a prescription for Valium. <laughs> this was 1977, folks. This is what they were giving you know, at, at that time. Um, I I was a good person. I started following what what he had said, um, and I started taking the Valium. But I knew I needed something more. It wasn't. It, I knew that that I'd lost weight before. I'd had a, a, a up and down kind of childhood, and I knew that that I needed some support somehow. So I was living in a small town in Ohio, and uh, I looked. I happened to look in the paper, and they and there was a little story that said there was a group of overeaters anonymous that was going to form. I had no idea what overeaters anonymous was, other than the fact that I had read Dear Abby, who occasionally talked about OA as being something that was similar to AA and 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 that also worked. Um, I was really embarrassed about being uh, being overweight and 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 being. Uh, in a position where potentially I could become ill for the rest of my life. And so I really didn't want anybody to know that I was seeking help. So I called the number that was listed, uh, which was kind of a brave step for me, and found out that um, that I was um, the person who was starting the meeting with somebody I knew. So, so there went my anonymity right, right at the beginning. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but I went, I didn't get to go to the very first meeting they held, but I believe I went to the second meeting. And uh, this woman had been an alcoholism counselor. She uh, knew that AA worked, uh, and she knew she had a food problem. And so she'd been going to AA meetings to try to work on her food problem, and, and that wasn't completely working for her. So she wrote to OA World Service and got a meeting starter pack and, and, and called a meeting and started it together. The week I went, the very first week of of August in 1977, uh, she had asked one of her AA friends to come and speak. And they gave him as much time as he wanted, which I've never seen happen before or since. (laughs) (laughs) And he spoke for about an hour and a half. (laughs) And he told his whole story. uh, But what he did was he went through the steps, one by one. And that clicked for me because, as I said, I had I had gained and lost weight in the past. I'd gone, I'd done all the things you've heard people talk about, so I won't review them. And and I knew there had to be something else, and the steps seemed to be that something else. And so I listened very carefully to what he said, even though I did not identify with him at all. He had been homeless. He had been on the streets of, a, of one of the big cities in the area. He had been. Um, he had, he had been uh, in just in really terrible shape, and I had never had any of that kind of experience. You know, I grew up in a middle-to-upper middle-class household and, and was you know, never, in, ne- never really wanted for anything. And, and, and yet, you know, he said he'd been sober for, for quite a while and that the steps were what work in terms of staying sober. So I said, okay. This is what it's got to be. I'm going to listen carefully, and I'm going to work these steps. So um, I'm glad there's some newcomers here tonight, and, and thank you for being here. You, you really are the most important person in the room, and, and I'm glad to be able to, to talk to you. This is my second time talking at this meeting, by the way, and for anybody who, who might be listening to it afterward, If you, I told my story more conventionally the last time, and if you look in the archive under Bill E, you'll you'll find me, and you can you can listen to the conventional (laughs) version of the story (laughs) after the meeting. Um, I so let me let me talk about the steps that I'm going to work my own story in as as I go. So let's start with the first three steps. I'm going to kind of break them up into groups. We have to be powerless in order to get in the door. I certainly was powerless. I realized that the dizzy spells uh, had, had actually abated because I stopped eating sugar. Um, <clears throat> the, my sugar. The sugar consumption really was related to the dizzy spells, as it turned out. Um, I've occasionally eaten some sugar by accident, and, and the dizzy spells have come back. So, you know, I know that I can't do this. I can't do sugar. Uh, That it is it is toxic for me. I'm told by medical people that you really can't have an allergy to sugar, but that's what I tell people is that I have an allergy to sugar. Um, Some doctors will always get after me. No, you don't have an allergy to sugar. You can't have an allergy to sugar, but you know, but it affects me. And and I've developed some other allergies too. I have an allergy to to a a minor allergy to wheat, but enough that it bothers me. So I so I don't eat wheat either. Um, and and I also don't eat peanut butter, which is something that that you know came down the line later that I was using. It turned out I was using it, and so okay, and I had to stop eating that too. So, but those are the major those are the major things that I don't eat. Sugar and wheat's a lot, you know. It really is. It it, it it's it's really. People say, how do you ever eat? Well, it's pretty easy. It's not that bad. You can eat you, you can eat all kinds of things and, and still not eat sugar. You have just got to be careful about how you do it. So, I was powerless. Um, obviously, I had this thing that I couldn't control. But, he, but it, the first step also says that our lives had, to be, had, to be, had become unmanageable. And that was the hard one for me. I didn't want to believe that. I, didn't, I wanted to believe that I could lose some weight and that my life would become fine again. And I could basically go back to doing what I was doing. And I was really ignoring the fact that the doctor said, you know, you're under a terrible amount of stress. You need this Valium, you know. And he said that for a reason. He did not say that 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 just you need to lose some weight or you need to stop eating sugar. He he said you need something else here to help you. And 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 he gave me that something else. And I was very aware that I was taking it. They, I certainly it, it was doing some good, but it was also doing some not good. You know, and it had some side effects. So. But still, I was stubborn, and I grew up that way. Uh, I grew up being told I had to be self-sufficient. I had to take care of myself. Uh, this becomes important later on, so I will, I will just plant that seed and, and let them come back to it. Um, the so I have had trouble admitting that I was powerless. I had tr- not trouble admitting I was powerless. I had trouble admitting that my life had become unmanageable. Okay, so I just needed some kind of power to help me to help me get get through. So the second step says that, that we came to believe that there was a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. That would seem to be pretty easy. The group, even though it was a group of newcomers, got pretty close pretty quickly, and, and, and we, you know, we were definitely helping each other, and that's what I was looking for. Um, in terms of some kind of spiritual dimension to the program, though, I, I blew that off, basically, uh, for about the first year. Um, I had said, well, you know, I was religious back when I was in school, and I, forget the fact I hadn't been to church in 15 years, and, and that uh, I said, I believe in God, so okay, I've done that, you know, I've, I've, I've done that part, I've got, a, I've got a group and I've got some kind of vague belief in God, and that's okay. And then the third step was I had to turn my will and my life over to this God. Well, this sounded pretty much like like evangelical Christianity to me, which I was sort of like, uh, no, but, 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 you know, I had been to a church camp when I was in high school, and, and, and I had, and, you know, they had an altar call, and I had gone down and I would said, yes, I commit my life to Jesus, and, 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 and so I figured I'd done that, you know. I figured I'd done step three even though that was a really long time ago. And it took, me, it took me a year before I figured out I was wrong. And the reason I ended up figuring out I was wrong was I kept trying to work the fourth step, but it, nothing would happen. You know, I'd get started on it, I'd write a little bit, and then, and then nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. Uh, finally, it took moving away from this small town and moving to a much larger city where OA was well-established. And I went to a regional convention that was being held just soon after I got there. And I went to a panel called It's My Program. And there were three panelists on the program, and they were talking about uh, how they worked their program. And and I was looking for some clues about how to write a four-step because it hadn't been working. So... So I, was, I went in and I was listening to one panelist in particular who I identified with who kept saying, uh, you know, I turned this over, and I turned that over, and I had this other problem, but I turned it over, and, 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 and everything was better. And, you know, by this time I'd been in the program more than a year. I'd lost a bunch of weight, and, and I went up to this woman afterward, uh, looking like I had everything together, and, and said to her, you know, I loved what you had to say, but I, I there's one phrase you kept using over and over again I didn't understand and that was turn it over. And, I mean we were through a group of newcomers. We didn't we didn't know the, the terminology. And and she looked at me <laughs> kind of as as if she was amazed and and, and and she said, Oh well turn it over refers to step three, turning our will and our life over and I do that on a, on a continual basis. Um Interestingly enough this woman and I became very connected. I started going to the meeting that she was a regular at. And um I really didn't feel comfortable asking her to be my sponsor, but she was somebody who was really important in, in, in my life. And um and I and I it got me thinking. You know, oh, well, if I'm not turning things over, if I'm really relying on this experience I had back in high school to say that I've worked step three, maybe I haven't really worked step three. And so then I went back and said, oh, well, wait a second, maybe I haven't worked step two either. And then I went back and said, oh, well, maybe I actually haven't worked the second half of step one. And, and, you know, my higher power had a way of doing that. Um, uh, I am powerless over my car. My car makes my life unmanageable. I have to turn it over to a power greater than myself and then trust that power because I, because I can't do my car by myself. I can't deal. If it has problems, I can't deal with it. So um, I took my car in for service. Uh, this was in Minnesota. And it was the day of the first snow. And, and I got the car in. And I worked it all out about how I would do this. I picked out a dealer that I thought, okay, let me take the car to the dealer. And I and and I got myself to work uh, on the bus. And and the dealer kept calling me all day and saying, well, this needs to be fixed and this needs to be fixed. And I just taken it in for normal service and tune-up. And and a couple the first few times I said I said okay. And then after that I said, how much is this? And and he gave me a figure that was way beyond my expectations for the work and and I said don't do anything more just put the car back together again and and I will come and get it so I went and picked it up Um, there was one windshield wiper that was broken that wasn't broken when I when I when I went in Um, the car was not running well and and I limped home with one windshield wiper the driver's side windshield wiper in the snow and, and and I felt awful, just awful. Um, and I have to and, and the next day, um, I went to a meeting. And the next day was a Saturday. I went to a meeting and, and I pitched about it at the meeting. And three or four people who I only vaguely knew came up to me after the meeting, and they said, "You are in no shape to do anything today you're really in a lot of danger we think you know come with us we will take care of you and they did i went i spent the rest of the day with them and i and i heard some really weird things <laughs> to be honest and i never spent time with these people again <laughs> but but you know just that experience of having been supported and, having been with people who were a power greater than myself who who helped me get through a situation and realized that, yeah, I could take my car to somebody else, and i and I did, and I could get it fixed, and I did and and everything was going to be okay, and it was really like having a third step experience to have been supported like that, so it's so I realized, first of all, my life was unmanageable. Secondly, there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to Sandy. Third, when I was willing to let them, when I was willing to let that power greater than myself, then it happened. And the next day was a Sunday. I sat down with this four-step guide that I had picked up at the, the regional convention, and I started writing my four-step. And I didn't stop until I was finished. But, of course, I said at the end of it, oh, of course, you're not finished. You've got to put it away and, and you know, and, and, and come back to it. And um, I was right. I wasn't finished. But, um, but, I, but I put it away and, and didn't do anything more on it until it got too painful about three months later. And then I made an appointment to give it away, and give, give it as a fifth step. Let me talk a little bit about the fourth and the fifth steps. Um, the big book says that there are three things to write about in the fourth step. First of all, we write about our resentments. Secondly, we write about our fears. And third, we write about our sex conduct, sex behavior. Um, These are interesting things. Resentments and fears are feelings. And they in themselves are not character defects. I mean, here's this is a moral inventory, but resentments and fears are just feelings. Now, why should we write about them then? Because what they do is they mask our character defects. They come up as a result of our character defects. So if we write down when we were resentful, and if we write down what we feared and what we did, then, and we start to see patterns in that, and we inevitably will, uh, then that's going to reveal the character defects simple, right? It is. It took me 12 years to get there. <laughs> that first inventory I wrote, no resentments whatsoever. I didn't think I had any. And, and, and the priest who heard my fifth step asked me about the fact that I'd left my resentment page blank. And I said, well, you know, I was a good kid growing up. I was the best little boy in the world. I don't think I have any resentments. And he said, don't you resent your parents just a little bit? And I started to cry. And I realized at that point that I wasn't done with my inventory. You know, that I had done what I could do. And that was sufficient for that time. And once I worked the fifth step, I threw away the Valium. And I never went back to it. And it wasn't necessary anymore. Um, and my life changed dramatically. I was looking, I was wanting to do a job change. I resigned the position I had without having another job. Fortunately, I had several months left you know on the position to look to you know the date was far enough away that I could look for a job and I ended up out in California I ended up in the valley where i where I stayed for fourteen years and and you know was a, a very active member of the o a fellowship there in in the valley so um, but it really didn't take. It took. It really took me until I had twelve years in before I actually wrote an inventory. I wrote three or four inventories, and it really took me till was twelve years in until I wrote an inventory where I worked on resentments and fears, and part of that was bringing up sex conduct. Sex conduct is is also not a character defect. Our sexuality is God given. We are. Uh, we are who we are sexually. Our sexual behavior is also God-given. Uh, we, we are made to enjoy our sexual behavior, I believe, and we're, and we're made to, to help others to in, in, enjoy their sexual behavior as well. But what we tend to do is we tend to make our sexual behavior secret. We tend to make it somewhat dirty. Uh, we, we tend also to, to lie and to be dishonest. Uh, in terms of, of of gratifying those needs, and and Bill W. knew that he had a problem with it himself, and um, and he so he he specifically wrote about that in the big book. The sexual conduct, because it was so hidden, was the was something that needed to be written about, and I needed to write about it because I was hiding that I was gay from myself, and uh, and and it it took being in this program quite a while before I even started to admit to myself that I might be. And it took even longer before I was willing to admit that, yes, I am. So I came out in this program, and this program really helped me in in, in that regard. And I treated it in some ways as a character defect, you know. And in looking back on it, that was wrong. The character defect was lying to myself and being... And And being in denial about myself. It was not sex conduct. But sex conduct helps to bring that up if we write about it. So that's why the the big book says to write about those particular three things. By the way, I couldn't figure out what a resentment was. And 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 so what I ended up doing was to say, I am uh, I I will call a resentment anything that's in my past that I still have feeling about. And that worked. You know, I wrote page upon page of things. <laughs> you <know. laughs> and, and, you know, I still have trouble realizing when I'm being resentful, it's easier now. You know, after 30 years and, and, and working on it, it's a lot easier. I, I'm picking up more quickly when I am resentful. But I, I still have that, that denial mechanism that, that is is very strong in many compulsible breeders. And I still have this, i got to be self-sufficient mechanism, that, that strong message that I, that I, I got in childhood that, um, that keeps me from wanting to admit that anything is wrong. And so I can't resent people because I wouldn't, be, I, I, I wouldn't be as perfect a person as I was raised to be. I had to let some of that go. I let a lot of that go over time. But it really took over time in order, in order to do that. And and so, just saying, as long as I have feeling about it, I'll call it a resentment, and we'll be done with it. You know, and it's not bad. It's not an evil thing. I thought being resentful was evil. Um, but it's not. It's something that's natural. It happens. And so when I think that, then I'm better at it. And when I think, just as I think, you know, I have this condition. I can't eat sugar. I get sick when I eat sugar. It's not my fault. You know, and and I got to work on it on a daily basis in order to in, in order to keep myself going, and and you know that keeps me going. It makes it easy on a daily basis not to eat sugar, because I know I'll get sick if I eat it, and I will get physically ill. So so step six and, and seven are this are the last two of the second part, um, and. And I had, and I, as yes, I've sponsored people, I, you know, the big book says step six is really should be done at the end of doing step five. You've identified the character defects, and you and you decide you're ready, and then you move into step seven, and you do it immediately. Yeah, you know, I've never had anybody that I've sponsored who's ever done it that way. Yeah. And I certainly didn't do it that way. You know, I, I had to sit down and think about in step six, okay, I've got these character defects. In the last inventory I did, I had a list of 20, 25 character defects that I'd come up with out of all that writing about those feelings and things. And and I and I said to myself, Well what would I who would I be if if I didn't have these character defects? I mean some of them are really essential to who I am. You know, who would I be? Would I be somebody I don't like? Do I really want to have God remove these things and, and, and possibly transform me into, into a, a person that I don't want to be? Um, I'm scared. and It took me a while. I finally said, you know, I've trusted God to this point. God has done some wonderful things in my life. God got me this job in California. I certainly did not get it. They called me up. I, I sent in my materials and they called me up and offered it to me on the phone without even asking me to come out and interview and that's just in my field that you don't do that, you know. But they did, and it took me completely by surprise. And it was higher power working in my life, not me, you know, completely in that regard. The so, but I did, I did have to get through that fear. That I, and and when I gave away the character defects, what I learned was, and there was always something uh, that I learned from Step Seven in particular. There's always been some kind of of miracle that's happened with step seven. Some kind, it's a small miracle, but some kind of miracle that's happened. Um, What I've learned in terms of giving away my character defects and asking them to be removed is once I do, then most of the time they are removed. Occasionally there's one that isn't. uh, And it's because I need to keep working on it. It's because maybe my inventory wasn't complete and I need, I needed to keep working on it. And, But what happens with the character defects is they represent a pattern of behavior. Remember we went back and that's how we came up with them in the first place? They came from fears or they came from resentments. Or they came from a pattern of sexual conduct. And, And what happens was that my disease gets me to a place that I feel like I have to do those things. If, if I get into that situation, that this is the way I have to handle it in the situation. I become compulsive about exhibiting those patterns of behavior. And what happens once seven steps has been, taken place is, I may enact that pattern of behavior again, but I don't have to do it anymore. The compulsion to enact that behavior lifts. And I have, find that I have other choices when I get into those situations. And, and so the changes that happen happen very slowly and, and they, happen very, um, uh, they, they, they happen so subtly that oftentimes uh, they're, they're not really noticed. So it wasn't like I had to become a completely new person. But on the other hand, people said to me, you know, you're a lot different. You've changed a lot. You're 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 doing things a lot differently than 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 you used to. So that that was interesting to me that other people noticed it and I didn't. Now let me tell you about one of the miracles that that, that happened. Uh, remember, I told you that I treated my sexuality as as if it were a character defect. And 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 I had been um, I'd been hiding in, in my sexuality, and basically the way I'd been uh, acting on it was to use pornography. And I had gotten uh, I'd gotten to the point where I was feeling pretty bad about this use of pornography. It was it felt compulsive to me. It felt like it, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that was just normal sexuality. It was something and it was something I was keeping a secret. And, and, and I wrote it down in an inventory and I gave it away. Seven, I I did a six and seven step on it. And I said, you know, my compulsive masturbation is a character defect. It's something that's part of me that I want to let, let go of. And I did let go of it for, oh, probably a month. And, and then started coming back again. And I, and I thought, you know, maybe I didn't do this Right. So, and I'm going to take off my clothes at this point because it's gotten really warm. Uh, <laughs> I, so, I took off my clothes. <laughs> and, and, and I sat down in the middle of my bedroom. And, and I prayed to God. And I said, God, I am naked before you. I really need this for this to be taken away. It is really hurting me. Please help me. Please take this up from me. And, a couple things happened uh, within about two weeks. I received a uh, phone call from the only woman that I'd ever dated seriously, and she said to me, uh, "Are you?" Uh, she said to me, I, "I'm going to apply for a teaching job. Could you give me a letter of recommendation?" And I said, "Sure," and thought, "Why did she, Why did she call me?" Because I've never seen her teach. How can, I, how can I really give her a letter of recommendation when I've never seen her teach? I can say she's a great person, and, 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 and I did. But then once I thought about it, I realized, you know, I've been holding on to this woman. I've been kind of clinging to this relationship because I haven't had, I've been so self sufficient, I haven't had much in the way of relationships in my life. And, and I've been using, and I've been dying my sexuality, and I've been using the pornography, and I think this woman really called me to let me know that it's over that I can really let go of her and and that the way I can do it is to write this letter of recommendation and, and just sort of be done with it. And 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 that was good. And um, and then I went to a, a meeting about a week later and the speaker was talking about his pornography use. And I went up to him afterward and I said I'm really glad you talked about this because I was thinking about going out and getting some, and I and I don't have don't feel like I have to after I heard you. And he looked at me and he said, "Have you ever heard of?" And then he named another 12-step program, and 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 I said, oh, "Only sort of." And he said, "I think I, you might benefit from coming to a meeting." And I how I ended up in another 12-step program, <laughs> working on 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 the sexuality issues. Uh, Turns out that I am I am a compulsive overeater and a sexual anorexic, and and I've learned from listening to people in the rooms that those two things go together rather frequently. Um, that that you know part of my compulsive eating is to deal with the fact that I don't feel comfortable with sex, that um, and I didn't feel comfortable with my own sexuality. And and it took a while. It took going to lots and lots of meetings in that other program, and I would be going to to a meeting every day, and sometimes more than one, and having to share and just you know really. I mean, this is 12 years into the program, and I was and and I was at this point of feeling like a beginner again. And I and you know uh, it's worked pretty well. I'm still sexually anorexic. Um, I you cannot abstain from sexual anorexia it's impossible to do that I mean what would you do to abstain from sexual anorexia so so what I do is I work on the pornography addiction and 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 I try to put healthy sexuality into my life on a daily basis and you know um, I'm very grateful that that today uh, today is is my 18th birthday in that program I just celebrated this morning and and um, and it's uh, it's been a, it's been a great help for me. The uh, let me move on to eight and nine. Uh, with eight, making a list of all the persons I had harmed, I wanted to make a list of all the persons I come in contact with, because I felt that I had harmed them just by being who I was. And and my let me see if I can open this. A little bit. Okay. And my um and and what I've learned over the years is that. That in order to, for them, they can be on my list. I can make a list of all the people I feel uncomfortable about, or however you want to do it. But in order to proceed to the ninth step, I have to be able to write down something specific that I that, that I've done to harm them, and I have to be willing to 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 decide what can I do that would make specific amends for the harm that I've done. And sometimes, you know, that's hard. I, and I work with sponsees. They make this list. A lot of people, if they're working from the, the form that, that, that who did I resent, you know, the form that, that, that's taken from the big book, you know, a lot of those people on that list are, are typically people that belong on the, you know, belong on the eight-step list. But, uh, but oftentimes they can't necessarily think of the specific harm that they've done to them. And so we let it go. You know, the, yeah, I had the resentment. Um, maybe it affected our relationship a little bit, but I don't know if that really did specific harm. So if there's been specific harm, then we figure out what to do, and in the ninth step, we make the amends for the specific harm. Um, it's interesting that, that, you know, I had no resentments, and so therefore I had, I, I had very few people to make amends to. And, and that turned out to be all right. You know uh I've turned out that living- amends has been much better for me than uh than making specific amends. I didn't steal from people um I stole food from my parents I gave them a gift I gave them a nice gift and 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 made somewhat non specific amends to them, which they accepted uh and then I came out to my mother later, and that was a whole other thing <laughs> but uh, <laughs> But the um, uh, thank you, uh, yeah, and I and and so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over eight and nine, and I'm going to get to I'm going to get to 10, 11, and twelve. 10, 11, and twelve are the living events, uh, not the living events. 10, 11, and twelve are are, are are living the program in everyday life, and 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 I'm and and essentially, to me, ten says go back and work steps four through nine as needed. Um, work, work them on a daily basis, if, if at all possible. You know, go back and review your day and, and talk about, you know, look at what went wrong. Try to make things right as quickly as possible. That's what's really worked for me, is to do an ongoing 10-step and to try to make things right as quickly as possible and to let go of, of resentments and, and feelings that I have about the particular day. Step 11 to me says work. Work step three over, over and over again. Except work it in a more sophisticated way. Try to come up with, with what uh, God means for you, and try to discern God's will for your life. Boy, that one's been a big problem. You know, it's like God's always helped me. God and God's kept me going on a career. You know, God's always gotten me my job, believe it or not, or God didn't get me the job when I really wasn't supposed to have it. And, and there was one job that I really wanted that God didn't get me in and you know it's okay that's that's what was supposed to that was what was supposed to happen uh, I've always been led in that regard um, in other areas I've had more problems discerning what is the higher power um, I've had a lot of problem with dealing with what is God I thought God was my father I had to let one, that one go that was for sure um I now think that God is, is spirit. God is out there. God is willing to do whatever I need. Not always willing to do whatever I want. But willing to do whatever I need. And I have to be in a place where I have to ask. So that gets us to 12. And 12 essentially says work step one and help other people work step one. So I'm back to my life being unmanageable. That I didn't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it means that I have to admit that my life is still unmanageable on a daily basis. It's a lot more manageable than it was, but it is still unmanageable. I still have to come back to uh, I, I have come back to meetings. I have a sponsor who I call five days a week. I have to work with other people. I have to give back as much as I can. I have to help other people to work step one and understand the steps of this program. And I hope that's what I've done tonight. So thank you for letting me share. Yeah. Yeah. We, we do have some. We have some time for questions. So I'll be happy to take questions. Yes, sir. Um, Hi, right, Mark. Mark. You, you mentioned. Uh, Fear and resentments um, obscure uh, the uh, effects. And um, I've noticed there's some resistance in me in terms of my being able to, to elaborate that in my own head. So could you elaborate that? Yeah, I wasn't a very resentful person, but I was a very fearful person. Um, I, acted on, I acted on fear that I wasn't good enough um, I acted and, and that what that did for me was to drive my ego, so sometimes go around and act, act like I was too good for you. Um, I pushed people away because I was afraid of them. I pushed people away. When I lost weight, I, I pushed people away, pushed people away. People got interested in me sexually, and it was like, "Oh no, I can't deal with this. It was you know, my sexual anorexia kicked in. So my anorexia is fear of, of being judged. And I had plenty of reason for that. I was judged a lot as a kid. Uh, I was judged by, by my father uh, and, ju- and found to be wanting many, on many, many occasions. I you know, ended up carrying around a resentment for that that I didn't realize that I had. But, you know, I, I, did, I did carry around a resentment for that. I was judged by the other kids in school because I was a sissy boy and, and they could pick on me and they did. So I was in fear. I lived in fear of being attacked as a kid, and I was attacked uh, from time to time. Um, I was I lived in fear of being humiliated. What's that hiding? Well, for me, it was it, it was hiding a, a pattern of behavior that I that I did to try to avoid having to be afraid. Uh, a pattern of behavior where I withdrew. Um, it's different for everybody. Fears are not the character defects. Some I I I. I fight with the sponsee about this all the time. He wants to keep calling his fear a character defect. And I, and I, and I say, no, fears are feelings. Fears are feelings that I have, as are resentments. But if, if I'm feeling fear in a, in a pattern of, of situations, if I can identify what the pattern is, that will reveal the character defect. That will reveal what I'm doing. What I'm feeling is, is different than what I'm doing. But I'm, and what I'm feeling may be legitimate in terms of of, uh, I could be in a dark alley and I could be fearful, and and what I'm doing is walking down the dark alley, and maybe I need not to be walking down the dark alley. You know, I mean that's, but if I and if I do that on a habitual basis and I'm fearful, uh, there's a lesson in that, you know, that I've got to do. So that's what the inventory is about: is we start with what we can access. We can access the fears. We can access the resentments. And then we write them down and don't worry about the patterns and then we go back and look at it and look and, and use a sponsor or, or someone else that can help to to look for those patterns. And that's what reveals the character defects. Uh, but it's a so it's a process. And one has to trust enough that 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 for the process to work. You know. I, I wasn't ready to write those inventories the first year. I was I thought I was, but I wasn't really ready to face what I needed to face, and it actually took me a long time to be ready to face what I needed to face, but what I found is that due to technical difficulties, the last 20 seconds of Bill's talk was cut off.